the underground bunker of the Civitas Studio in Raleigh, North Carolina, it's Civitalk with your hosts, Brooke Medina and Ray Nothstein. We're here to connect culture with civics, making it relevant to your daily life. And dare we say, existence at a time where too many are triggered and offended. So, relax. But buckle up and let's wade into the deep end of what's really happening in your old north state. Welcome to another edition of Civitalk. We're going to have a quick reaction to the VP debate. Cal Cunningham, obviously in a lot of trouble here in North Carolina with his new scandal, will discuss socialism and the liberty and justice for all movement. And maybe look at some competitive legislative races right here in North Carolina. Brooke, how is it going today? It's going great. It is, uh, you know, I think what, less than 30 days to the election, maybe 20 something days at this juncture. And I will just be really glad when all of this is over. But I feel like my energy is starting to come back because I see the end in sight and we can start talking about something other than elections. No doubt. Let me ask you a question, though, because I think a lot of people watch the vice presidential debate. Probably a lot of our listeners did, at least, Um, even though it tends to not make much of a difference in the outcome. One thing that bothered me at the end, I was watching the ABC coverage just because that's what I had on. And George Stephanopoulos, he said that Mike Pence mansplained several times, but then offered no examples. And you being a woman, did you, did that come across that way to you at all? I just want to get your kind of interpretation of that, because for some reason that really bothered me. And then I saw a couple people put out articles, obviously, I think, uh, belaying or, or building off of Stephanopoulos' comments about mansplaining. But did that come across to you at all? Uh, no, not at all. I didn't. Not at all. I, I They were having a grown-up debate. Now, I'll be honest, Kamala Harris's behavior sometimes and like her her kind of condescending tone bothered me a bit. Um, but Pence did not come off as mansplaining to me. Uh, he did sometimes come across as a little too saccharine, a little too sweet. Yeah. Um, I think he could have been a little bit... Uh, I don't know, not as flowery in his speech and been a little blunter, whereas Kamala Harris more than made up for that on her end. Um, but mansplaining was not something on my bingo card last night that I would have uh, daubed with a little marker. What else stood out to you? I mean, obviously, vice presidential debates, as I just mentioned, don't really have much impact in the race. They don't win. I, I guess, you know, if there was such an awful performance it could potentially lose the race if it was really close but you know they just don't move the needle much is there anything besides the obvious that we're not mentioning that there was much more constructive than the last presidential debate is there anything else that kind of stood out to you that was different hmm I, well i thought that honestly like having them seated like that even just that little change um and then the the different format i thought that those were helpful still wasn't ideal i really believe that we need to go back to more of an old-fashioned debate format um so i think they need even longer than two minutes but i i thought that it was just a, a better characterization of how debates should should be run as opposed to the previous presidential debate. It wasn't, it still wasn't ideal. I don't think the moderator did the best job. She kept saying segue, let's segue. That's a good segue, 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 segue. So she kept saying that, which was a little off-putting, but that's, I mean, that's kind of like a petty 
complaint on my behalf. But um, overall, I thought it was a decent debate and it didn't exceed expectations, but it didn't underperform either. What do you think? What were some of the big takeaways for you? Well, I was not a big fan of the moderator, and I know these were the rules that both uh, campaigns agreed to, but it felt like the answers were too short in many respects, Um, and and sometimes they didn't seem to add up consistently in terms of fair time. Um, Part of that may have been on Pence. He was speaking kind of slow and measured, and that was probably deliberate of him, but that's kind of his style to begin with. But um, yeah, there was just a couple times where I was like, I wanted to hear more and she would cut them off. And, you know, to me, one minute responses or 30 second responses or even 15 second responses aren't adequate for a format like that. And uh, maybe that's what the campaigns agreed to. But to me, it just left a lot to be desired in that in that respect. And also, I mean, at the end, I was watching this ABC News coverage and you probably noticed this. A lot of people talked about the fly, of course, that landed on Pence that I thought had, had died at one point. I wasn't sure if it was on my, <laughs> my television or it had died or, or what. But um, people, uh, ABC News, like immediately after the debate finished, they brought on a doctor. And she was like, this is an early sign of COVID. And then the doctor was like, well, you can't a really. Fly? For, for Pence, no. The, his red eye. I'm sorry. You noticed oh, his eye was a little oh, red or bloodshot. The fly landing on you is like an omen of COVID? No. The, the, her, uh, Pence had a little bit of a bloodshot eye. Did you notice that? Yes, I did. It, it And it's so contrasted with his like snow white hair that it was right. really... Uh, well, really anyways, I don't remember her name, but they brought uh, ABC News brought this doctor on and she started speculating about his eye and said it might be an early sign of COVID. And then she goes on to say... Well, you can't really make a diagnosis like that on TV. So it's like, why are you speculating and then immediately saying you can't make a diagnosis like that on TV? So I just thought that was interesting. But, you know, that's kind of the era and this sort of COVID fascination that we live in. I mean, the, the, the one point that did stick out to me during the actual debate was Pence, I think, slaughtered uh, Kamala pretty hard on the Supreme Court packing issue and, and basically asked a question. Oh, asked yeah. a question that the moderator should have asked and never did, of course. Um, but he asked Kamel Harris to answer about, are you guys going to pack the court? Because that's really a big issue, um, not just in Senate races, but in the U.S. presidency. And, of course, no answer. Harris tries to go into some weird history lesson that's not really relevant to what we're talking about here. But, um, you know, it was just that was the thing that really stuck out to me. I think he he nailed her down pretty hard on that and uh, to his credit. So. That was really, you know, and of course, uh, both candidates did fine overall. I mean, if you're just judging on a on a, on a merit aspect, so that was really all that I really took away from that. I, I and another thing I thought was that Pence needs to give some tips to Trump on how to debate because I thought Pence did a pretty good job. He was very measured, and um, you know, he he needs to kind of show Trump how to handle that a little bit better when he has his moment in the spotlight. Yeah, um, except that, do you think the, do you think their like core base really wants him to be more Pence ish? No, <laughs> I mean, I would like for him to, but well, right. I mean, that's the one thing that uh, people are attracted to Trump for is that he's this brawler, and I think there's more of a median though, Brooke. I think you want to be measured and in control of yourself and your faculties, but also you can be, you know, let Trump be Trump and let him have his persona, but. You know, in the last debate, he went so overboard. I thought it was such a distraction for his campaign and probably ended up hurting him. You know, the latest Rasmussen poll, which has shown the Trump-Biden race very close, basically neck and neck. And, and, you know, that's not a pollster I think you can say has been 
pro-Biden or as part of the fake news or whatever you want to call it. He's been he's been kind of a Trump uh, pollster for a long time. And he basically has Biden up 12 now. And it, and it said, I think that Trump is bleeding women at this point. And, um, you know, women tend to I'm going to say this very carefully. They tend to be a little bit sometimes some women, not all women. Um, I don't think this is necessarily true of my wife so much, but they tend to be a little bit more emotive in their reasoning and in their, their voting. And, and that's not a bad thing. I'm not mm-hmm. saying that's inferior uh, in some ways. Right. No, it's yeah, it different. Can, it's different. But, and it yeah. can be superior in many ways because they see things sometimes men well, don't see. But, um, you know, that that's a problem on Trump, not women. So he's, he's bleeding them pretty profusely right now. Honestly, I, I think maybe even beyond a motive, a good way to characterize how a number of females, again, we're making a generalization here because right. some males do this too, but are more intuitive in voting, whereas some males are often more analytical. And so that that's just a gender difference. And so when someone who's maybe more pragmatic or analytical looks at a candidate like Trump and they see those sort of behaviors uh, they quickly get over the emotional hurdle of that rudeness and get more down to the pragmatics of, okay, well, who's going to make sure that my paycheck is a little bit lower or, you know, is a little bit more adherent to some of the American values that maybe I care about. Whereas an intuitive person might look a little bit deeper at the character issues and prioritize those. So, yeah. So I think Trump has to do a better job of kind of reaching a lot of women if he's going to win this election in the next 20 something days because time's running out. So that's kind of my um, my take on that in terms of the presidential election. And I'm sure Pence, you know, with his measured tone, tried to help to some degree with that. But I I don't know. I mean, you've got a Biden and a a female candidate that's going to be attractive to at least some women out there. So, um, you know, time's running out for Trump, I think, to. Uh, you know, and there's a lot of things I like about Trump's persona, but he needs to behave a little better in the next debate if there is one. Yep. Agreed. Agreed. Well, let's talk about behaving and um, discuss a little bit of this Cal Cunningham development, uh, which is no doubt very concerning for his campaign. But I think you said something really good on Twitter this week regarding this. And uh, you reminded the public not to just be so overly political about this, but there's something deeper going on here w- with this affair. And, uh, you know, there's just, we need to, we need to remember that there are real people involved in this that are really hurting as a result of this. Um, but also there's political implications too. So I don't know where, which direction do you want to go with this first? Well, I think we can kind of point out that, you're right, this hurting aspect of his life, and then we can kind of get into the campaign stuff, but obviously we're dealing with a broken man who um, is looking for f- fulfillment in the wrong places, so that's you know, jumps out to me right away. But you know, just from a family aspect, I-, I honestly don't know much about his family. I saw a picture of his wife recently, didn't know anything before. I can't remember if he has two daughters or a son and a daughter. Um, I think two daughters. I, I think, think you're right. I mean, I think I saw a picture of his family, and I think that's what I remember. I know that there's people out there probably screaming if we're getting it wrong. But um, anyways, you just feel bad for them because, uh, you know, that's their dad, and, and uh, that's her husband. And, you know, obviously all couples are flawed to some degree, but um, I just feel bad for the family from from, from that sake of it. And not just a political standpoint, because look, I mean, the politics will sort itself out. He obviously made a major 
air, and this is not something that happened years ago or uh, maybe even just months ago, but just so recently. So uh, there's that aspect of it that I think is just it just kind of hurts your heart because you feel bad for the family and, and the broken lives. It's not that he just has damaged his family, but there's the other husband. There's potentially other mistresses that we've heard about. So there's just a kind of a trail of recklessness that he's left behind. And I think it's important to focus not just on the political side of this, because like I said, the politics will sort itself out, but to have compassion for his family and um, to have compassion for the people that have kind of been destroyed and have their, you know, names uh, drugged through the mud. And that just, to me, kind of jumps out. And, and also to just, we're all infallible individuals. I mean, politics is filled with infallible individuals. We all make mistakes. Um, I don't think he's inherently an evil person. He clearly is lost and has, has lost his bearings and lost his way. And, and with duty, you know, with, with, with power comes responsibility. He was an officer in the army. So we know that he had a responsibility to look after and be a caretaker for his subordinates um, and, and not be a home wrecker in that aspect, too. So there's so many different layers here, Brooke, and uh, you can shed a lot of light on this, uh, obviously, as well. And we'll kind of jump into the political after your comments, I think, and just see where the race shakes out. Yeah, yeah. Um. So your, your point on him uh, running as a family man and that being a significant part of his campaign was his personal life. That was how they decided to message him. Uh, the campaign strategist did. And so, um, it, you know, it coming to light that, that that was more of a facade, that that wasn't as authentic as they led the public to believe. That's an optics issue. And I think it's it's one of those things where he was caught off guard by a CBS 17 reporter, Michael Hyland, who's an excellent journalist. We've interacted with him numerous times. And um, he, he approached Mr. Cunningham over in Raleigh yesterday and just asked him more about this. And Cunningham said, look, this isn't about my personal life. This is about, you know, what's best for the North Carolina people. And I, I get his point on that. And I believe that we do need to respect a family's privacy as they're dealing with this pain, especially, uh, you know, my heart goes out to his wife and, um, and Miss Todd's husband. But uh, also, he's made this campaign about his personal life as well. He continually cites his military service and his persona as a family man. And so, you can't have it both ways. There needs to be an added level of humility. Um, and like you noted, we are all fallen, fallible individuals. So I don't think that this is an indication of someone being inherently evil. I think it's an indication of poor judgment. And like uh, Andy Jackson, our elections policy analyst noted, of public concern really shouldn't be the affair in and of itself. It should be the timing of it as well, because that does indicate incredibly um rash and, uh, you know, short-sighted decision-making skills on his part. And so that should segue us to really the political fallout from this. I mean, Tillis has COVID, Cal Cunningham has this issue um, going on. So uh, for a while, it looked like Cunningham was significantly ahead of Tillis, but I don't know if our next poll is going to really indicate that anymore. Yeah, I saw, I didn't read it real close and someone out there who's listening may know more about it, but I saw... Um, for what it's worth, and I don't know if they use an outside polling firm, but Breitbart said it was basically a tie or Tillis was, you know, statistically ahead in, in a very recent poll. So I don't know much about that poll, but I saw it floating out there, some people citing it. 
But yeah, I mean, I wonder, Brooke, if if the John Edwards, um, people from North Carolina that are, you know, remember John Edwards, and I would assume that's all of our listeners, of course, had a very public scandal, cheated on his wife, who was uh, essentially dying of cancer uh, for a number of years. And, um, uh, you know, he was uh, John Kerry's running mate in 2004 against George W. Bush. Of course, that scandal came out later. So I wonder if that, in a way, hurts, from a political perspective at least, hurts Cunningham because maybe a lot of North Carolinians don't want to go back and and do the whole uh, sexual scandal thing again and and about to elect a senator that is kind of embroiled in a sexual scandal. I don't know, but I will say I'm not 100% convinced that he's necessarily automatically done. We've heard some people say, well, he's automatically done. Obviously, Tillis wouldn't be going out there and, and talking about it if he was automatically done. Obviously, I think all these even some of these Republican operatives would be laying off it a little bit if he was obviously done. Uh, Cooper wouldn't be defending him publicly as he is right now. Governor uh, Roy Cooper of North Carolina wouldn't publicly be defending him if he was obviously done. They think that maybe there's still a path for power for the Democratic Party, ultimately, uh, even more than uh, Cal Cunningham here. So there's still a lot of variables in play. But I do think, um, you know, maybe the person that was going to automatically vote for Cunningham now takes a long pause and and has deeper reflection on how they're going to vote. Um, maybe they'll skip that race altogether or they just won't vote for Cunningham. And I'm sure there's a few conservatives and we already knew of some that were, you know, not going to vote for Tillis for, for various reasons. Yeah. Well, and uh, that really does highlight something that Dallas Woodhouse of Civitas wrote um, last week on, on our website regarding just some of the lessons and takeaways of this and how it relates to early voting and how people who vote early in North Carolina is like the earliest voting uh, state, I think in the whole union, um, how they could have buyer's remorse as things begin to unfold in October. We're, we're no stranger to October surprises at this juncture. And I just wonder about all those people that have already cast their ballots. And so I think that's a good conversation to have going forward is, how early is too early for voting? Yeah, no, I mean, that's something I've really had a, a big problem with having moved to North Carolina and heard about all this early voting. It, it's really bothered me because, you know, I think the best model, Brooke, is um, not obviously not getting rid of absentee va- ballot voting or anything like that. But um, I, I prefer, really prefer a one day, one vote um, model. I think that takes a lot of this sort of chicanery and sort of this um, what I would call just this whole election process with the lawyers and with the scheming and with the manipulation of ballots, I think it ends a lot of that if you go to a one-day, one-vote model. And I would even prefer just having a voting holiday and just do one vote a day instead of you know making this huge early voting process where I think you just have a lot of the machinery and mechanics kind of manipulating things and you get more lawyers involved that way and more idiocy and more... Uh, potential for fraud. So, you know, that's my take on it. I hope people will listen to that. I doubt that they will, but um, I'll throw it out there anyways. <laughs> no, I think, I think that those are, that's some wisdom right there. So I hope they do too. And uh, speaking of wisdom, we know that socialism is utterly and completely foolish, the opposite of wisdom, um, despite it being well-intentioned by many, I would say. It's just one of those things. It's it's the definition of insanity is doing something, doing the same thing over and over again, yet expecting different results. And I feel like that's socialism in a nutshell. 
And so I know that you're writing a paper or I mean, an article right now on the North Carolina Democrats, Democratic Socialists of America. And so I wanted to kind of see what some of your discoveries have been up to date on that. Sure. You've seen phenomenal growth, really, with the socialist movement in America. I mean, this was kind of a fringe movement for a long time. It still is in some respects, but you you have a lot of young people joining. I mean, I think one of the crazy statistics I saw, this is a dues-paying organization, so you have to have buy-in, obviously, to join. But they've had the median age has changed from like 66 to 33 just in a matter of a few years and a lot of this has to do with bernie sanders and angst over donald trump and and other things but it's just phenomenal to see the growth of socialism among young people in this country we've talked about this on our podcast before we've talked about this in written content at civitas but it's it's a real concern and i know that there's hope for younger generations out there but to see kind of the flocking in the movement to socialism it's a legitimate concern, and I know that I'm not just blaming those people for being ideologues. I know that there's some frustration out there. Maybe they come out of college with lots of debt. They, they don't feel like they can make it as much as their parents could, and there's genuine frustration out there. But to turn to uh, a failed ideology that has failed everywhere over and over and over again. Um, and the one thing I want to say about um, just – what stuck out to me in writing this article, which should be up on our website by the time you listen to this, hopefully, if it's not, it'll be up within the next 24 hours of when you listen to this. But um, one thing that really jumped out to me was uh, that National um, Democratic Socialists of America convention in Atlanta in 2019, because you had the jazz hands um, to prevent people, you know, you just kind of not clapping because that triggers people, uh, uh, Brooke, if you clap. Because if they have a sensory overload, they'll get triggered. And just like somebody got up and was talking. <laughs> somebody got up at this okay. convention. You could watch it on YouTube. Just type in Democratic Socialist Convention 2019. Got up to say, um, hey, guys, uh, you guys are clapping and I have a sensory overload. And then immediately some other person jumps up and goes, can we, you, you please not use gender language to uh, talk about people here? And so <laughs> it's just sort of like a, oh a nut asylum. Yeah. Ray, your uh, your voices are amazing. You have thank you, Brooke. Thank That's you. Yes, I missed. I didn't know you had that. That. Well, you know, I was in theater in um in uh, middle school and high school, but I was bad at memorizing lines, so I never made it very far. But uh, but I have some natural talent. But um, but yeah, I mean, can we just agree that this is kooky? Right. <laughs> but I mean, I, I could just like have you go on for a few more minutes, kind of imitating this because that's funny. But no, I mean that's that's just that's a sign of a movement. If they are, if the Democratic Socialists of America, I mean, they're not that big of an organization at this juncture, I would say. But I, I do need to say after you finish, I do want to uh, wrap up one thing with that. Oh, so. go for it. Go for it. Well, I was just going to say that, yeah, we kind of make fun of them, but AOC was a member as a Rashida Tlaib, I think, is in Michigan, who's a congressional um, member, is, is also a member. So they, do, they don't actually run their own slate of candidates, but they try to influence the Democratic Party. And I think you're seeing a lot of influence of them within the Democratic Party and pulling it further and further left. So while we kind of make fun of their goofiness, the Democratic Party is actually appropriating 
to use one of their terms, is actually appropriating a lot of their language and a lot of their ideology within their own campaigns. So I just wanted to throw that out there. They've, they've endorsed Barack Obama before. They've endorsed John Kerry. They've endorsed Jesse Jackson. Of course, they've endorsed Bernie Sanders, who spoke to them a couple of times. So there is a lot of influence within the Democratic Party right now, Brooke. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, so for as fractured as the Republican Party and the right is, and I think you and I see it more than many that are maybe more centrist because we, you know, we see these ideological arguments take place within within the party and within conservatism. I mean, the left is just as fractured and there's just as many splinters. You've got like this Elizabeth Warren, Bernie Sanders populism, and then more of the establishment um, Biden arena. But then there's more of the social justice, uh, uber social justice, defund the police side, which Kamala Harris has kind of tapped into a bit. And so her and Biden on the ticket together, I think make more of a formidable team than maybe him and someone else. Um, but yeah, it, but unfortunately, a lot of this stems from a uh, poor civic education here in the United States. And that's why so many more people are amenable to socialism. However, I say that though, but still really do think that Democratic Socialists of America as an organization and a group, uh, although they may be developing some clout, if they're going to have meetings like the one you just described, feel like it's dead on arrival because it's like they can't even you know get get the focus off of little tiny things and not making jazz hands properly to actually care about some of the bigger ideas that most of middle america cares about yeah i hope you're right because that sounds like a dystopian nightmare brooke um (laughs) so so but we are seeing the democrats appropriate some of their language and, and some of the things that they say so We'll see. We'll we'll continue to monitor them in North Carolina. They have uh, three three chapters here: one in the Triad, one in uh, Asheville, and one in Charlotte. I know, shocking, very predictable. And then, of course, there's some college uh, chapters out there as well. So we'll continue to monitor kind of what they are up to in North Carolina. I mean, it's the usual kind of far left um, uh, stuff, but you know that I think is important to kind of see just sort of the ideological fracturing that's happening in society too. We now have, you know, not just two party system, not just Democrats and Republicans, so to speak, but we're seeing uh, major fractures along ideological lines. And here in North Carolina, we make fun of them, but um, exit polling, I forgot who did the exit polling. I think it was NBC news, but 48% of uh, Democrats that voted in the last primary in North Carolina said they have a positive view of socialism. That was higher than uh, those that said that they had a positive view of capitalism. Yeah, and I think that that, the, okay, so that number actually is very interesting and I would say a little bit cognitively dissonant uh, with this other study that I wanted to cover because, you know, there there's this kind of cooling towards social, or I mean, warming towards socialism. I would say some people are becoming more socialist curious, um, but I don't think they really have a, good understanding of it because oftentimes they point to like the Scandinavian countries as socialists, right. which they're not. Um, they are market-based economies just with a heavy welfare state, which is different. And it's so funny though. This is a little bunny trail. It's so funny because sometimes you'll see these people on Twitter and they're like, do you support, um, do you support public education or Medicaid? Then you support socialism. I mean, they conflate the two as if there's no nuance, there's no spectrum or anything like that. And it's just, 
either they just genuinely don't understand how this works or they're not intellectually honest. I'm not sure. But back to the study that I uh, that I was sent the other day, and it's just even in the midst of a pandemic, um, millennials and Generation Z are, are uh, more optimistic about the American dream and opportunities going forward. And so I thought that this was uh, a good finding because even though we are kind of bracing ourselves for a long-term recession or even a depression, uh, there is still some sort of, some semblance of optimism among the younger generations about their financial prospects. And I think that that just speaks to kind of this resiliency within that's kind of innate in American spirit. We have historically overcome so many things. And so it's kind of ingrained in us, even if we don't understand that it was capitalism that unlocked a lot of that economic strength. Um, we just kind of have this naturally optimistic outlook on our our opportunity prospects. And I think that's because of just free enterprise has been allowed to really reign supreme in a lot of ways, even though not completely free market, but in a lot of ways, that's kind of part of the American yeah, absolutely. DNA. And I think that's good because we've seen so many studies that have kind of pointed to this um, just aggrieved uh, victim oriented mentality with a lot of people. And I understand that. I mean, if you're coming out of college or grad school with hundred thousand dollars in student loans and you feel you can't get a good job and you can't make it and you know, you can't afford uh, certain uh certain things that a lot of your friends have, then you're going to get aggrieved and you're going to kind of latch on to that victim mentality. And I think you're something, seeing some of that with the DSA, the Democratic Socialist of America movement, and it's, it's feeding a lot of people. But I've noticed too, from watching its convention, it's overwhelmingly white. Um, it's overwhelmingly, it tends to be overwhelmingly male and white. And I don't know if I've quite tapped into why that is, um, but uh, it, it is certain, certainly something to monitor but I, yeah, I hope, uh, you know, you're optimistic. You want to be optimistic about the, you know, the progress of markets in this country to lift up people, to give people the opportunity that their parents and their grandparents had, and hopefully a greater opportunity than that. And, you know, I think that's been one of the kind of the depressing things we've seen a little bit is a lot of young people feel like they don't have that same opportunity. And of course, that's not, you know, that's not something government by itself is ever able to solve. And to have that line of thinking, I think ultimately you end up debasing yourself and, and kind of losing your own sort of freedom and sense of worth because socialism is a materialist ideology. It basically breeds an idea that the materialist individual is taken care of by a state, you know, and, and not necessarily by, you know, the sort of free aspects of the market or the chance or uh, merit and things like that and, and blessings from the creator. And so, to me, that's, that's just kind of an important distinction that we see. And hopefully people, even like you said, with this huge civic crisis, people again will understand that. So you're exactly right. Yes. Yes. Um, yeah. And then let's, before we close out, I did want to ask you about this open letter to our fellow American citizens It's called Liberty and Justice for All. And it's a new initiative uh, by Daniel Mahoney of Assumption University. And I know it was something that has a number of signers, such as John Potterhertz. How do uh, Potterhertz? I think. Am I saying his last? Yeah, John Potterhertz. Yeah, I don't know. Rich Lowry of National Review, R.R. Reno of First Things, Albert Moeller of the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary. So some 
or big names, a number of other ones. But can you tell our audience a little bit about this and why you think it's important? Yeah, I mean, Daniel Mahoney, um, you know, if you've ever seen any Acton University lectures or listened to any, um, that's kind of where I met him. He's a scholar at Assumption College. And he was on the Law and Liberty podcast a few months back talking about the riots and looting going on. And he made some very, like, um, kind of succinct uh, cultural observations about what was going on in our society. And he kind of talks about how he felt like this lone maverick out there alone on an island because nobody in academia, nobody in the intelligentsia was speaking out on these issues. Um, and, of course, that led to a movement of this proclamation that he helped put together. And really, it's just a defense of constitutional, the rule of law, constitutional society, and a, a religious framework, uh, virtue, all these things that freedom requires in a course of a free and fair market. So he, he brings all these things out to out to uh, to talk about here in the public square. And I just think it's a valuable thing. If you haven't gone listen to his recent interview, just type in Daniel Mahoney, Law and Liberty and, and read that brilliant interview, because I think if you want an understanding, Brooke, of kind of what the listener wants an understanding of what's going on kind of in our culture and society today, I think that's an important piece to read. Even if you don't agree with every single point that he makes, I think he helps kind of diagnose what some of our problems are in, in culture and society today. So, um, you know, I'd encourage people to go read his interview and go read the uh, proclamation, um, which uh, uh, you mentioned the title. Uh, I don't have it in front of me. Could you repeat it again for us? Liberty and justice for all, an open letter to our fellow American citizens. It's just something I think to read. And I think reading it along with his interview is helpful to kind of understand what's going on. And he makes the point. Look, I mean, I know probably a lot of our listeners are Republican, but he makes the, the report, the, the point that the Republican Party was really absent when a lot of this was going down. Instead, you know, they weren't out there defending our constitutional, mm. um, you know, culture and our constitutional institutions and our, you know, our religious framework that kind of bred this great society that we all live in today. And so I think it's just important to, to read what he has to say. And it really moved me this morning, kind of reading it. And uh, he's very courageous to be doing this in academia because look, I mean, a lot of people in academia, even if they agree with, you know, things that we agree with Brooke, they're often bullied. Uh, they're bullied by department chairs. They're bullied by the uh, heads of universities to uh, keep their mouth shut and not say anything. And, and many times we've seen clips now where they have to actually say stuff that they disagree with. I mean, you had a Northwestern professor out there who basically signed a letter saying he was racist because all white people on the faculty had to sign some letter. They were saying they were racist. I mean, it's ridiculous. That's insane. Why don't you take us home, Brooke, with all this ridiculous going on in society? <laughs> I want the ridiculous to stop. That's what I'll take you home with. But um, you know what, though? it's interesting and I'll, yeah, I'll close with this. Uh, there is right now we reward ridiculousness in terms of media views, in terms of catchy headlines, clicks, likes on social media. These are things that actually drive the gatekeepers of media to really continue to highlight the ridiculous, even if the ridiculous isn't something that most of us would it would accept or say is normal, but these uh, these kind of marginalized voices that should be marginal marginalized because they're just they're hateful, they're vitriolic, they are um, fascist in a way. Uh, they should be ostracized, but uh, you know we get this constantly pre presented before us, and so I think it lends to this sense that things are kind of going to hell in a handbasket, and honestly. 
the more we spend out with just our regular everyday community and um, fellow North Carolinians, I know there's some people that definitely are on the fringes and are conspiracy theorists, tinfoil hat wearers and stuff like that. But by and large, these people are those that really, um, the people in our community are those that want to make it a better North Carolina too. And so I would say that that's what should matter to us. That's what should uh, that's what we should focus on and not just allow the the media or other people or um, preferred political narratives to divide us. So thank you guys so much for listening this week. We hope you have a wonderful week. And as always, feel free to leave us a question or comment at radio at nccivitas.org.